Welcome to episode 261 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Darlene Green. I'm really excited to share her story. Darlene had to focus and know her goals in the Navy to continue moving forward and have a successful career. She joined the Navy to fly jets, but by the time she graduated, she shifted her focus and began her career in personnel. While in the military, she fell in love with leadership, and it helped drive her career with the unique roles and opportunities that she filled. We also touched on the challenges of being both a mom and service member and how she was able to find balance, along with the challenges she faced as a woman having to prove herself over and over. I really hope you enjoy this interview, but before we get started, I want to remind you, you can listen to Women of the Military podcast on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview with Darlene. Welcome everyone to Women of the Military podcast. I'm really excited to have Darlene here to talk about her time in the Navy, so welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Initially, I decided to join the military to fly jets. I thought that looked like the coolest thing on the planet. I loved watching my dad come to and from work. He was an Air Force jet jock, uh, 30 years in the Air Force, and that looked pretty darn cool. And I thought that would be really fun to be in a, a flight suit and fly those things skyrocketing in the air. That sounds like a great inspiration for joining the military. So that's a little bit about your why. Now we're going to talk about how did you join the military? So how did you end up joining the military? So I received a scholarship, an ROTC scholarship right away. Uh, interestingly enough, I received a Marine Corps scholarship. I thought I was applying for a Navy scholarship. I got a Marine Corps scholarship and the first six months of, of my time at University of Virginia were under the Marine Corps scholarship. I was absolutely miserable. I was the only woman. Uh, I was not a runner. They did not want me to be a Marine in their unit. It was not fun. It was not easy. I remember actually, Amanda, this is a true story. I called home somewhere two or three months in and I said, mom, I'm going to drop my ROTC scholarship and I'm going to, um, I'm not going to do that anymore. And she said, okay, honey, you know, moms are so sweet, right? Okay, honey. And then about one minute later, my dad gets on the phone. He says, no, you're not dropping anything. You don't know up from down. You don't know what you're doing. We can talk about it at Christmas time. And I went home Christmas time, which was Alaska at the time. And I spent like three weeks there. And every day I had a, a, a speech in my head of how I was going to talk to my dad. I never talked to my dad about it. I got on the plane. I cried the whole way back to Charlottesville. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I went in to see the commanding officer of our ROTC unit. And I said, sir, I would really like to try the Navy option of ROTC. And he's, and he was you know, real rough and said, well, Midshipman Bennett, why do you want to, why don't you want to be a Marine? And I, I had a lot of thoughts in my head, <laughs> but none of them would have been very nice to the Marines uh, that I was working with. And I said, you know, sir, you're either a Marine or you're not a Marine. And I'm just not a Marine. And he kind of paused for me. He goes, okay, actually, that's a pretty good answer. And all right, we'll try you on the Navy ROTC scholarship. So I ended up doing the Navy. Uh, I ended up getting the Navy ROTC scholarship. I ended up then doing my four years at UVA and being commissioned the weekend that I left, uh, that I graduated. And then I always expected I would spend, you know, my payback tour four or five years back. Uh, but I ended up doing 20 actually. So surprise. <laughs> so not quite what you expected. I like that answer of like, uh, some people are Marines and I'm just not one because it does take a certain type of person to be in the Marine Corps and, not everybody can be that. That's why there's a few, right? That's right. I, I would have, I was very, I'm very proud of all, all women servicemen, service members, right? But I think I have a particular admiration for Marine women that that is having just that little six month experience, <laughs> which was not even real, right? It's, I mean, we had a gunny sergeant, so that was real, but the rest of the unit was just really just school kids not really knowing anything. So, uh, but it was real enough to me at the time. And uh, it, it was, it's just not easy. It, and certainly the Navy is not easy. Um, any of the services are not easy for, for women and certainly back then particularly, but, but that was more than I was willing to handle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you switched to Navy and what was the experience? Like how would they compare 
Well, there were women. So for, in EVRTC, there were women. So first of all, there were other women, and that was great. And I wasn't the only woman. And they and they and they accepted me, and they wanted me there. It wasn't like and not just the other women, but the other guys were much more open. It wasn't like you are infiltrating our male space, and we do not want you, and we want you out at the earliest opportunity, and we're going to do everything we can to make you get out. So that was really my experience of the Marines, and the, and the Navy was totally different. And I really loved, I, I, that was my family, like for the four years of college, more so than my sorority, more so than any class. My Navy ROTC uh, peers and senior leadership and all of that, that was my family. I worked in the building there. I slept overnight, sometimes studying around, around the clock in our locker room on a cot. I, I mean, I just lived and breathed it all. And it, it was huge for me. So it sounds like you found community and, you know, the support you were looking for. And so that, I mean, that makes a huge difference. And then just being accepted and being part of it and, and loving it instead of like dreading going to be a part of it each week. Exactly. So you said you wanted to be a pilot. What did you end up doing in the Navy? Yes, I ended up starting off my Navy career at Damneck at Fleet Combat Training Center Atlantic. I did not uh, pursue being a pilot at the end. It was I, w- I married the weekend I graduated and was commissioned as well to a surface warfare officer. Uh, and that was not very easily compatible. And so I just shifted my vision to something more compatible for us to be able to be stationed together. So my first job was at Fleet Combat Training Center Atlantic Damnick, and it was really not a job. It was the assistant, the assistant director trainer. He had no idea what to do with me. He didn't have anything for me to do day after day after day. I finally, I would go and say, please give me some work. Please give me something to do. And they really had nothing. Finally, I was able to talk to the commanding officer at one point, just briefly. And I said, sir, I really don't have a job. I am very capable and I would really like to do something meaningful. You're wasting valuable resource and I please give me a job. So they ultimately then made me the public affairs officer for the base. And I thrived on that. Uh, that was great. And I enjoyed that and thought, oh, this is what I want to do in the Navy. I want to be a public affairs officer. So I put in, I put in a package actually to become that designator. And while that was going on, they moved me into a new role, the student and quota control officer job. And this was my first division officer job. And I had an opportunity to do leadership. And I absolutely loved that. That was a, an amazing experience. I had a great a great chief and senior chief and uh, just a, an amazing opportunity. So I realized that at public affairs, you don't get to do leadership and you don't get to be division officers. And so I pulled my package out and said, okay, I don't want to do that. From there, I went to the Pentagon, actually, and was an intern for the Joint Chiefs of Staff under General Colin Powell and Secretary Cheney. And that was... A remarkable. I, I actually, I can't even describe what a difference this was for me because I went from being amongst a group of people that are probably very normal in the Navy to being in a team of everyone in my office made flag. Like they were just the cream of the crop. They were beautiful human beings. They were so amazing to work with. They were very careful, even though I was the only, I was one of two women and I think we had 600 people. And even though that was the case, they were very careful. My boss was very careful not to ever, no one was ever to ask me to make coffee or, or cut a cake or, or anything that was even remotely domestic in nature. I got a chance to do some amazing work in an operation. We were in the, um, the Joint Operations Division of uh, J3, essentially, so operations. So that was amazing. So that sounds like a really unique and interesting job. Did you have to apply to do that job or how did you how did you get that opportunity? So it was something, uh, I had an admiral that had, I had been singled out in the work that I was doing as a student and quota control officer. I had actually gone to brief uh, the vice chief of naval education and training with uh, our, our admiral boss on some things that I told them they were measuring wrong. I basically said, you're, you're measuring this. That doesn't make any sense. You should be measuring that. And here's why. And here's the difference. And they thought that was actually brilliant because someone white one told them that they were wrong, but two it showed them what they needed to be doing. And that was based on like flow charting and, and process control and customer service things. But uh, he had asked me several times to be on his staff, to be his aide. And I mean, I know you, this was just not a good vibe. Like I just felt a very flirty vibe from the Admiral and decided that was not something I wanted to I just didn't want to do it. So I told him repeatedly, no, he asked me six times. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry, 
it's just not what I want to do. And it, it you know, that's a, a very career enhancing job to be an animal's aide. So to say no was not necessarily great for my career, but it was what I thought was best for me. And so then he said, okay, well, if you won't come work for me, would you be interested in being an intern on the Joint Chiefs of Staff? I'll nominate you for a very special program. And I said, I would love that. <laughs> so that's, and that ended up being how I got that job. I think it's really interesting that you were very firm in like what was right for you. And like, sometimes people get focused on like what's right for their career and they don't think about like how like work-life balance or just, you know, what the right situation, the right boss. And so that's really amazing that you were able to, you know, at such a young age, have that wisdom to be like that, that seems like such a great opportunity, but also it could like, you know, ruin me as a human. And so, and that's awesome that he didn't like hold a grudge and was able to help you in another way and give you that opportunity. I appreciated that very much. You're right. After that job, you you were going to tell us what you did next. So can you tell us what you did after that? Yeah. When I was an intern at the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I had, you know, they were offering me a lot of different jobs, but I really wanted uh, an officer in charge job. And the my detailer said, there are no officer in charge jobs in the area. Sorry. And I, and I just said, okay. And so they said, would you like this job? And I said, no, thank you. And I'm in the meantime, I'm calling every single personnel support detachment in the area. There were 16 and I'm running through my list and I actually get to one of them. And the, the, the officer in charge was somebody I had worked with in my very first job. And she says, I'm, I'm here, but I'm about to go be, I think she was going to be an admiral's aide for a different admiral. And she said, I think I'm going to be rolling early. And so while it doesn't look like my job is going to open up, I think it's going to open up. And I said, please tell your boss, I would like your job. I'm sure you'll get the job. And I'm sure. So a lot went into making that happen. Um, she told her boss, my boss talked to the detailer, everybody talked and it, because it wasn't actually being broadcast yet, as soon as it became available, they slated me for that. So I worked really hard and I was super excited to get that job um, because then I was experiencing leadership in what was just an amazing, amazing job. I had thousands of customers, right? I had a staff of about, I think there were about 60 people and they ranged from 18 to 65 and they were civilian and military and they were men and women and they covered all sorts of different cultures and, and different kinds of uh, demographics. And this was a very interesting tour for me because you know, I was, it was my first big leadership role. Yeah. And you talked about something really important. Like they were like, there's no jobs. And you're like, okay, that's nice. I'm going to go and call everyone and see if I can find a job. And I think you had two things, you knew what you wanted and then you did all the work because sometimes I think people are like, well, I'll just put what I want to do on my, like, you know, whatever the form that goes to um, the people picking out jobs and then I'll just sit back and wait and hopefully like everything will work out. But you took the initiative to be like, I need to find something. I want this job. I There's got to be a one out there. I'm going to just start making phone calls and doing that work. So that makes sense why you were able to get it because you did all that work. And sometimes you have to do all that hard work to get what you want. I, I agree. I couldn't agree more. It, you know, we you can sit around and wait and be handed whatever they offer you. Um, at, at the time, it was really hard for me to. It was really hard for me to say no to my detailer because she offered me a couple positions and she was not happy that I was saying no. You, you know, she she would say, "Well, you know, I don't have to ask you, right?" You know, <laughs> I'm like, "I know." Would you would you please bear with me because I really think that there's this opportunity coming around the corner. So she ended up working out with me. Yeah, that's good to know as well. Like there is some flexibility in working with people and like building that relationship. And I mean, sometimes you get an assignment, it's not what you want to do, but sometimes you can work with your detailer and figure things out and find stuff that works for you. So after that job, what did you do next? Yeah, uh, they offered me the most amazing job, which is, hey, do you want to go be a student? Go to Monterey, California and go to Naval Postgraduate School and get your master's. And I said, Oh my gosh. Yes. What, you know, what am I going to owe you for that? And they're like, Oh, just a three-year payback tour. I can't even imagine a better deal. Uh, a lot of people, when I got to Damnick, my very first job in the Navy said, Oh, you're at a shore station. It's a training command. You need to work on getting your master's. And I had just graduated from UVA. I was exhausted. That was not an easy school for me. 
uh, it was, a, uh, you know, I was like, I'm never reading another book again. <laughs> you know, That's kind of where I was coming out of college. Like I am so done with school. So no, I, I was absolutely not interested in working on getting my master's at night. Uh, you know, I'm like, if I'm going to get my master's, you're going to have to send me as a full-time student. So that when that came around as an offer, I was elated. And that's when I went to Monterey, California, and I got my master's. And it was in manpower personnel and training analysis, which is, it was really an MBA with a lot more uh, analytical and math work, actually. Yeah, that's such a great place to be assigned. Monterey, California is beautiful. And I mean, I think I, I was thinking back, like when I graduated from college, part of it was like, I want, they were like, you need to go back to school. You need to go back to school. And I'm like, I don't even know what I want to go back to school in. And everyone's like, just get your MBA. And at the time I was like, I'm never going to start a business. Hindsight. I'm like, maybe I should have done those night classes, but I was in the same boat. Like I was tired. I just wanted to do my job and I didn't feel like I thought I was super busy. I really wasn't. Um, but <laughs> It just wasn't the right time for me. And so that makes a lot of sense. And then you had such a great experience at um, Naval Postgraduate School. Yeah, I, I did. I did for the most part. So one of the things I discovered, I, I had had a great camaraderie with my unit at Navy RTC. I had working, good working relationships with all the people that I worked with in my, in, in both and all my other jobs. I, I had a little bit of an issue in my officer in charge position and with a couple of chiefs who did not want to be working for a woman and made that really clear. So I, I was very delicate and careful with their egos and, and learned a lot from them. Always, always, always learned a lot from my senior enlisted, but also learned how to navigate that as carefully as possible. But when I got to Naval Postgraduate School, we took off our uniforms. We, we wore them like, I don't know, once a month, I think. And, you know, in a, in a civilian setting, what I discovered sort of broke my heart. I had all of these men around me that were my peer group saying, I don't think women should be in the military at all. You should be barefoot home and pregnant in the kitchen. And I was just like, excuse me, what? And they gave me all the reasons. Oh, you know, your periods and this. And I'm just like, what decade are we in? Are you kidding me? I just couldn't even get over it. It was, it was so frustrating. And they showed no respect for me as an academic student or as a, as a professional. And I, I mean, I was just devastated. I had no idea that this was sort of undercurrent of so many. I'm like, okay, well, if this is sort of just coming to the surface. This is, there's so many of you here saying this, this is more prevalent out there. They just sort of stay quiet when they're in their uniform and they're in their command. This was a much more relaxed environment where people, you know, brainstormed and talked about different ideas. So uh, that was really hard for me. And, and I felt like I had to earn my stripes there. And, you know, I, I was getting like, the only A in class after class. And, and I would, there would be an excuse this, you know, people would, guys would say, oh, this or that, or oh, this, whatever, whatever, that's a soft course, or that's whatever. So we took a class in multivariate analysis, and it was known to be the hardest class in our, in our entire curriculum. And it was hard. And we had to do this particular analysis. I was, it was a DARPA study and I had done the analysis of this and the, and the math was wrong in the study. And I'm not, I'm not really anything special with math, but I, I had looked at the integral and I'm like, they, they actually, they were comparing training uh, from the academic environment versus on the job training. And they, and they had not done the math right. So I am presenting in class and I present that the math is incorrect. And I think they came to the wrong conclusion. And, you know, the professor's eye, he's like used the same study for, for 15 years, his eyebrow raises. And I'm like, oh my God, what, what have I done here? And the rest of the class starts to argue with me. And eventually uh, I showed them on the, on the board and, and the, and we wait for the professor and he says, she's absolutely right. And I've, I've had this study interview, you know, the study has been reviewed like for 15 years and no one's noticed that. And this one Marine who was kind of the leader of guys he turned and he goes and there's not a damn one of us anywhere in this room who would have caught that so you know like it was kind of his way of saying stop giving her such a hard time show her some respect and i finally did really feel like i earned my respect from from my class that day yeah but it's so hard to hear like stories like that because you shouldn't have to earn it like you should have earned it you know just by the fact that you were there in the program and it's interesting how taking off your uniform and being in civilian clothes like really affected the dynamic and changed, you know, the whole environment. It, it really is. I, I do. I will say I did feel like every time I went to a new job, 
every job. I ha- I was negative 10, working my way up to ground zero, then working my way up to trying to be the number one position. And I did end up being number one at every tour I went to. But I started out at number t- I started out below ground every single time. You're a woman, you know, you, you, it's just, it was just the way it was. I even had some, I went to, when I went to work after my master's, went to become, uh, I went to the Navy Annex and it was my payback tour to, uh, for Navy Manpower. I arrive at N12 and I'm told right out of the gate, like week one, well, you know, the Admiral doesn't think women should be in the Navy. So this Admiral that I'm working for, she doesn't think women are supposed to be. And I'm like, how am I going to get the number one slot from an Admiral that doesn't think women should be in the Navy to begin with? I did, but it, it was not an easy thing to do, right? Uh, you just have to prove yourself all that much more. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a theme that, I mean, I've heard that theme on the podcast, and I really like how you're articulating it, especially like the negative 10 to then, you know, just getting to ground level and then having to work your way up because it is you come in with this like negative perception and just because you're a woman and not anything to do with like your background or anything, you have this like negative thing. And so there there's a pressure to prove yourself and a pressure to not just be good, but to be excellent so that you can so that you can be good enough, which is like and I don't think I think that's one of the challenges that men don't understand in the military because they don't have that pressure to prove they already feel like they belong and maybe you know minorities have that in that same sense I don't know but I know that talking to women that there is a common theme of like having to prove even today I think it's not as strong as it used to be but there's still people who don't think women should be in the military I agree with you Amanda so, so you were able to get your credibility and then, and then you went to the next assignment after kind of going through this like humbling and challenging situation and finding out like the admiral in charge doesn't think women should be in the military and you're like, okay, what do I do? So you said you were able to like work your way up. So what was that experience like? I worked really hard. Uh, I, I worked long hours. I was very careful. I, you know, it was, I was fortunate in that I'm a good writer and a lot of things we were doing were point papers and it was, were very visible. We were actually taking papers to the Pentagon and representing the Navy's view on things for the Navy. So it was, and we had to do them very fast. So I can work fast and I can work well, I'm I'm quick, but it was a a little bit of a pressure cooker, but uh, I had a great boss. I had a great boss. I had a couple of great bosses there. And in fact, while I was there, I had baby number one at Naval Postgraduate School, uh, first daughter, and then I had my second daughter while I was at the Navy Annex. And during that tour, the Navy decided all women are going to see. Like, it doesn't matter if you're a general unrestricted line. It doesn't matter what you've been doing in your life. You're all going to see. Pick your aircraft carrier. You're going to be a training officer on the board or an admin officer on board or whatever. We need, we need more people at sea. Well, I had just had uh, my second daughter, and she had had a very tough birth. It was, she was an extremist for 11 minutes. Her APGAR scores were zero, zero, zero for 11 minutes. They almost pronounced her dead. So when she finally, you know, got out of the NICU and went home with me and we're just still having her checked regularly. Is she going to hear? Is she going to, is she going to walk? Is she going to have seizures? We just have no idea. You know, I, we were, I was just frantic of worrying about her. But I told my boss, I, I'm getting out. That, that I'm putting in my, res- my letter of resignation. I'm out. And uh, he said, Darlene, I really want you to reconsider that. I said, I can't do this and have these children. And <clears throat> initially, it was just about being uh, able to take care of them and stay at home with them. But, but then when they were talking about going to sea, I was like, yeah, no, I'm out. So I actually did put in my letter of resignation. But initially, he said to me, you know, your, your, your half day is better than other people's two days. So you, if you would just give me a, a less than a normal, like you don't have to work 12 and 14 hour days. You, you can work a six hour day and give me more than most people. So could you just kind of bring it back? And, and, and he would come by my desk. It was, you know, 1700 or five o'clock. And he would say, what are you still doing here? I'm like, well, I've got this point paper and it's due today. And he goes, go home. I'm like, it's not done. I'm, I don't care. Go home. Like he was all about taking care of me in a way that was really beautiful. At some point in time, he put me in touch with a detailer who said, you don't have to get out of the Navy to not go to sea. You can become 
a, uh, I, in fact, I'll send you to a new command. I'll send you to command and you can oversee a Navy operational support center and take care of our reservists. How does that sound? I was like, that sounds great actually. <laughs> so, so I ended up staying in, but I was, I was at the 12 year mark. I had actually been deep selected early for Lieutenant commander or 004. Um, so I was, I was on a fast track. I hated to get out, but I was not going to leave my daughter and go to sea when I didn't even know how she was going to be. So that was a great alternative. And so my, my, my next, my next job was a very interesting. And one of my favorites was to be commanding officer of the Navy operational support center in orange, Texas. I love hearing the support that you got from leadership and especially when he's like, go home and you're like, but I, go home. You've already done enough today. And that he saw the value you were providing and was like, you need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of your family. And, and like, it's great that you're pushing really hard, but you're pushing yourself too hard. He kind of like, you know, enforced self-care. The Navy was still getting, you know, more work out of you than someone else who maybe was working later or whatever, but it's not really the hours. It's the amount of work that you do. And so he recognized that. So that's really great. And I like that you, I mean, a lot of people, because the, the retirement systems change. So I think looking at like those decisions now would be very different than, you know, back then because the retirement system was, you know, all or nothing. And now it's totally different. But to be at 12 years and to be like, I have to, I need to take care of my family. I need to, like, I love the Navy, but I need to take care of my family and how important that is. And that you were able to get support. So many times you don't hear good stories like that. So so tell us more about that job. And like, I mean, you're a semi-new mom because your your kids were really pretty young still. And you're trying to manage, you know, that job and the transition. And as, you know, she, your younger daughter got older, I'm sure she became more stable and that made life a little bit easier. But what was that like? I found for me, my, my first daughter did not do well in daycare at all. And she just was sick all the time and she wouldn't sleep. You know, kids are supposed to nap like half the day or whatever. She just didn't sleep. So I initially shared a nanny uh, with a gal down the street. We had, we had a nanny that she brought her, her little boy over to our house and the nanny came to our house and we had um, both the kids then ultimately the three of three kids uh, in the house. When I went to Orange, Texas, I got a, I mean, I got another nanny, a great, great nanny. We're still in touch today. Amazing. And, and, you know, part of my requirements for my nanny were not just taking care of the kids, but also taking care of me in some ways. It was, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to come in. And when I walk in the door, I want there to be dinner. It doesn't have to be on the table, but dinner's ready so that when I walk in, I can start playing with the kids and, and then the nanny leaves, right? They don't live with me, but they leave. We do dinner together and we play together and we, we you know, I tuck them into bed, but they would do things like, you know, go to the post office, get groceries for me, uh, get mail. It was like having a housewife. It was like having a domestic god around me. It was so fabulous or a house husband. Um, so super helpful for me because I just needed that support. I wanted, in fact, there were, I, I did silly things like my, my youngest, uh, they, they wanted to do karate. They were little. Um, and I was like, okay. So I talked to the karate instructor. I'm like, look, I'm without my kids most of the day. And I really would just like to take karate with them in this little tiny class with these little tiny kids. Can I do that? Because <laughs> I just don't want another hour away from them. And he said, sure. So I was the only adult grown up in a class of little peewees doing karate. I mean, it was just, it was just, I did silly things like that to make sure that I had time with them because they were the priority, but my job was hard. I loved my job. I had 16 acres. I had six warehouses. They used to build uh, military ships there. And uh, we were on the Sabine River. It was just amazing. There was a bit of an issue, however, because I was the first woman commanding officer there. And I did not know that going in. I get there and all of a sudden, this is a really big deal. This is front news newspaper. This is TV. This is like every three times a week I'm on in the newspaper. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, let's just stop talking about the fact that I'm a woman here. But but I after being there a little while, I understood like there weren't even a lot of women that had degrees in this little area of Southeast Texas at the time. There were clubs for women that had degrees. Uh, I had speaking engagements. They were asking me to speak all the time, uh, every several times a week. But I had issues with some of the men, um, just not 
having respect for a woman leader. <laughs> so I was trying to think of what could I do to earn respect? And I challenged everyone. I had 120 people working for me. I challenged all of them in the command to a physical fitness test, push up for push up, set up for set up, like not girl versus boy, like just one-to-one and anybody who beat me would be awarded a soda of their choice. I mean, it was just sort of for fun, but uh, that was, and and of course this was my first physical fitness test after my C-section. So I hadn't done a PT test uh, since then. And I'm like, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? Um, But I did that physical fitness test daily, twice, every morning before work and until uh, we had the physical fitness test. And then that day I had, I had guys going off to buds and uh, they were like, bring it on, man. We can't wait to, to take you down. So we had the physical fitness test and this one guy uh, comes running over uh, the Navy SEAL wannabe uh, buds guy. And he turns to me, he goes, I did 100 and I think it was like 126 pushups, ma'am. How many did you do? And I turned to my counter because I thought I knew, but I wasn't really sure. You know, you're not always sure you're keeping track. And I said, how, how many did I do? And he said, she did 127. And he's like, what? So I think I did like 136 sit-ups, 127 push-ups. And the, I had a very fast swim time versus runner time. I actually ended up handing out a soda. It was to a woman whose run time was faster than my swim time. So that was really, really fun. And I enjoyed the heck out of that. Um, that was a That was a great tour. But I... But I will tell you a, another problem. Like I had, I had this judge reservist who would see me in the hallway. Amanda, he would walk up, he kissed me on the mouth, like "hello," and I'm just like, "Stop! What are you doing?" And he said, "I'm just saying hello." And I said, "No, no, you shake my hand." And he said, "But I'm so happy to see you." I go, "Let me show you the double hand handshake. You know, this is it. Like this is all you get. Don't be kissing me. Don't be kissing the staff." Don't be kissing the woman. Okay. And that had happened before. That happened in the Pentagon. I had an admiral kiss me on the mouth uh, to say hello. And another one at the officer's club. And my first command, I was like, what is wrong with you people? (laughs) Like, I'm not your granddaughter. (laughs) Anyway, when I left that job, I I will share with you, I was given the most moving gift I may have ever been given in my life. I was a couple things. One, I was presented a key to the city of Orange, which was really cool and a, and a proclamation and a day in my honor, but another a key to the another city, Lake Charles, Louisiana. But my wardrobe presented me with a sword. And what they said when they presented the sword to me at my change of command on my way out was, this is symbolic and means we will follow you into battle anywhere. And I have to this day never been so moved. Uh, funny story about this though, my um, husband at the time was also, um, you know, he had been in the, in the Navy and he had his own sword. And so we had our two swords in the closet, but I think, I think my, I think it was my husband's that was sort of visible. And my daughter, the oldest daughter was now four or five and she is moving around the sword. And, and my husband says, honey, don't play with my, my sword there that, you know, that's not for kids. And, he, and she says, daddy, this is not your sword. This is mommy's sword. And he said, no, that's actually my sword. And she said, everybody knows only girls get swords. <laughs> so really very, very warped world. But, you know, he wasn't in the Navy anymore. And she had seen me presented with this sword. And so very, very funny. Uh, she's the daughter that actually went to the Naval Academy and um, ended up uh, doing very well. And then my other daughter went to the Air Force Academy. So they they earned the, the they, they got the military in their blood too. So that was, uh, that was my CO job. And then I moved on from there. I think that's a really funny story. I was talking about Veterans Day a few years ago and said something about their my husband. He's still in the military. And my son was like, boys can be veterans? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, they can. I love that we are teaching you that girls are veterans. And he was like so confused. And so um, I think it's really funny that like how you're raised and like you know, who your parents are and how that inspires your, you know, way of seeing the world. And I think that's another reason why it's so important for women to go out and like, well, we're recording in November, but this will go live in January. But um, I'm planning to go to my son's school to talk about being a veteran for Veterans Day. And I got to do it last year and it was so impactful. The kids kept sending me stuff like throughout the year. It was like, 
honor of police or whatever and they'd be like we want to send something for mrs huffman because she was in the military and it was just really cool to like see how you can you know form a generation's mind of like what military service looks like just by going into the classroom and sharing about your experience so i love that and i love that they both went to um, military academies and continued the legacy and just it's so cool we have four we have four kids two the two boys were marines and uh the one was medically retired after um, contracting spinal meningitis or something in uh, the Horn of Africa. The other got out of the Marine Corps and then used the GI Bill to get an aviation degree, got back into the Navy and is now going through Navy flight school, becoming a helicopter pilot. And the other, and then the two daughters went the academy route. And so they're both active duty right now. Yeah, that's so cool. And especially because like you were able to balance, you know, being in the military and being a mom. I liked you were like, I did all these silly things, but it was like, actually, those are really smart things. Like I want my kids want to do karate, but I want to spend time with them. So I'm going to do it with them. And like it's outside the box thinking and it kind of probably felt silly doing karate with, you know, a bunch of little kids. But I bet your girls remember that and, or I don't know if it was your boys or your girls, but whoever you did it with, um, they remember that as like a fond memory and they probably just thought it was normal. They didn't, you know, even realize. So we're gonna, well, we're not gonna run out of time yet, but I don't know how far we are in through your career. So well, I'll, I'll wrap up our only, we really have one tour, well, two, two but I'll make them really quick. The um, chief staff officer job in San Diego in the Navy Reserve Readiness Command. And then my final job in the Navy was a commanding officer of the Navy Operational Support Center in Phoenix, where we had 1200 people. Um, while I was there though, I did the thing I'm the most proud of in the Navy. And that is I created with a team of people, the Returning Warrior Weekend Workshop. And that was really initiated and developed to support these reservists who were individual augmentees going over to Afghanistan and other places. And when they were coming back, they were not doing very well. They were not uh, reintegrating very well. Their, their marriages were not doing very well. They had PTSD. They had a lot of issues and they didn't, they didn't know that so many of them had this because they'd gone over as an individual and come back and the spouses had been alone the whole time too. There weren't units. So we pulled together this amazing curriculum and we trained facilitators and we had this workshop and it was so impactful. We had little uh, sessions like why I want to go back and, you know, spouses were like, what do you mean you want to go back? You just got back after being on a year and you're telling me you want to go back. This was hard on marriages. But when everyone in the room, everyone in the room is saying they want to go back, the spouse all of a sudden realizes, okay, there's something bigger than me going on here. This is not about me or my marriage. This is about something I don't understand. And then we had a facilitator try to explain what that meant and why and have people explain why. And they, it was the very first time for a lot of spouses, they ever heard their military member talk at all about their experience and getting that conversation going. And we had chaplains and doctors and uh, therapists doing EMDR and lots of things that showed them their support system. And it was a weekend. Most of the time people didn't know I had had a lot to do with building of it, but at the very final one, my last day, they awarded me a medal and they, they kind of publicly acknowledged that I had helped to create this program. And so I had 120 people walk up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes, salty chiefs with tears in their eyes and said, you know, I think you saved my life this weekend, or you, you know, you definitely saved my marriage this weekend or whatever. And it was just so intrinsically rewarding and moving. And uh, I had, I had built that for my command and then over time had taken it throughout the Southwest region. Uh, so as I was leaving, I had, I had actually, I think the very last one was actually in Monterey, California, which was kind of cool. But uh, that program is still in existence today. They have yellow ribbon uh, funding for it, and it's it's been remarkable. So so that's the extent of my, I got out at that point, and that's the extent of my Navy summary. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think I recently did, I was thinking about, I did a writing class, and it was with mainly military spouses. And I'm I'm working on writing about my experience in Afghanistan. And that was one of the things they said, oh, reading this, I kind of understand some of the things my spouse has talked about, but hasn't like talked about, like he's just said stuff in passing and it doesn't really make sense, but you're writing about like what it actually felt like. 
and I've never had a conversation. And it was kind of crazy and eye-opening to think about, but have I actually talked to my husband in great detail about my experience? No, because it's just kind of like, unless someone's asking the questions, like, like, how do you even express how you're feeling? And so it's just easier to not say anything. So that's such a powerful program. And I love hearing that it continues on. What a legacy of something to not only like create, but like to finish your career with and like see it continue today. That's Thank really you. Cool. Thank you. It, it is really cool. It, it, uh, it, you know, I know one of the things you ask is like, was it hard to leave the military? It was hard to leave that program. Um, and a lot of people were, were saying, you know, come in and do this as a civilian then. But honestly, it broke my heart too, because I was hearing the stories over and over and there's, you know, there's something called secondary trauma and I needed to not be in it and hearing the stories anymore because I'm a very, very empathetic person. And it was just sort of hurting my soul. So I, it was, it, but it was hard. It was leaving my baby. It was like, okay, you guys just take care of, I don't even want to see what you do with it. Like, I don't want to know. Um, but I have kept in touch with people who were a part of that for many, many years on. And, you know, it was, it was just really neat. Yeah, you're right. That was my next question. What was it like to leave the military? Yeah. So, you know, it was it was hard in some ways because they wanted me to pick an industry. You know, okay, what industry do you want to go to work in? Well, I've done, you know, I changed jobs every year to every two years for 20 years. And I've done a lot of different things. And I can do a lot of different things in a lot of different industries. So I could do something in construction or medical or operations or logistics or, or admin or, or whatever. And I just didn't know. And they're like, no, you have to pick an industry. I'm like, why do I have to pick an industry? I don't know. So I didn't really pick an industry. I just ignored that. And ultimately I had um, an IT leader look at my leadership resume and say, I need you. And I said, I know really very little about IT. I had an IT department that worked for me, but I did not get into the weeds of that. And they said, I can teach you that stuff. You can learn the language around that. That's that stuff's easy. I don't have, I'm not having success teaching my IT people leadership. So let's do it the other way around. So I started off uh, in the IT industry and I remain there today, although I've done both the, the hardware and the network and security and data and voice side of the house. Uh, then I went to be a vice president and McAfee and the software side of the house. I did a quick little squirt out of that because the girls wanted to go to a school called Culver Girls Academy in Indiana, which is in a town of 1200 in the middle of nowhere. And I went there and said, I don't, this was the first time in my life. I like left a job and had no idea what I was going to do and was not, everyone wasn't following my career. Um, and I was like, okay, this is all for you. I don't know what I'm going to do here, but I'll figure it out. And ultimately I became the Dean of their Girls Academy. I was their Dean and they just did not like that so much, but I enjoyed that a lot and had an opportunity to really mentor. It was a leadership school. So it was a great opportunity to teach the staff about leadership and how to demonstrate that leadership and not just teach it in the classroom. I think sometimes when we get advice when we're leaving the military, people are like, they have the best intention, but then they're like, you need to fit in this box. And most military people do not fit in boxes. And so it's kind of like really hard when they're like, you have to fit in this box. And you're like, I, I don't like that box. And I don't want to be, I, especially I, I'm like, I don't want you to tell me what I have to do and <laughs> what it needs to look like. And there is so much flexibility and possibilities. So it's kind of, I think it's like the military is trying to streamline it and they forget that we're individuals and it needs to not be so streamlined. So that makes a lot of sense. That's right. In fact, there's a funny story. Uh, when I was applying for the job of vice president at McAfee, I didn't meet any of the criteria. I mean, there was a laundry list of you have to be 15 years in architectural engineering. And the HR person said, do you have that? I said, no. Oh, do you have a big CRM and SaaS background? No. Do you, she asked me like seven questions. I had no to all the answers. Then she said, okay, well, would you live in Santa Clara or Plano, Texas if you got the job? And I said, oh, no, I'm not leaving Arizona. I'm going to stay right here because my parents just, they've been 27 years in Alaska and they're finally right around the corner and I'm not moving. And she's just like, oh my gosh. So she was just like, you have a great resume, a wonderful life. You have a wonderful life, but this is not a good fit for you. Well, the CIO just kept saying, I want to interview her. Uh, and she's like, no, you cannot interview her. She doesn't meet any of the criteria. 
And he's like, I want to interview her. So he finally um, made her inter interview me. Like I finally got an interview with the CIO and uh, ultimately many, many rounds of interviews later ended up getting the job. And he, he said, hiring you was the best decision I ever made. And, but I will tell you when I sat at the table with her, when she was giving me my hiring package, she was not happy about it. I asked for a sign out bonus. She'd literally spit some coke out her nose she was so like are you kidding me <laughs> anyway i got the sign on bonus uh, sometimes it's just knowing you can do the job and having the confidence and knowing that your skill set is right even if the words on the paper don't match so i would just say don't limit yourself because i actually heard what the job really was and it wasn't being reflected very well on paper i love that i love that you you like stuck to who you were and then I love that the HR person was like, you can't hire her. And they were like, no, we really want her. And then he's like, but she doesn't. It's like, yeah, well. And I see it in Arizona and they, they could not believe it, but I did. And I did the job great. And, you know, it, it, it is, it was, it was a really fun job and, it, and an interesting one. And one I'm really glad I, I had the opportunity to take, I had, a, I had, they had, a, they were all about leadership and, and, and it was, it was, it was great. But if it was only because of my Navy career that I had the confidence to, I mean, I didn't have any background in software. I didn't have any background in a lot of the things they were doing, but I knew that their problems, and he actually said to me, you know, my problems aren't really engineering. My problems are customer service and process and leadership and communication and all the things that you do really well. So yeah, I, I can see that you would be a really good fit for this. They actually had to rewrite the entire job description before they hired me because had to take out all those things that I didn't have so that they could even take me in. I love it. I love it. But that's so awesome to hear that story. And it just kind of goes to show that like, there's the way that you're supposed to do things and then the way that things always that actually happen and rarely do they actually align. So take those risks, apply for jobs you don't think you're qualified for, but you actually are and see what happens. So is there anything from your time either in the military or your transition that you wanted to cover before I ask my advice question? Yeah, what I'm doing today, I think, um, it, you know, the one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, I am still doing technology, um, but I'm more recently very, very passionate, sort of like when I was doing the Returning Warrior Weekend. I was passionate today about what I'm doing as I was back then helping people because I'm helping people to activate their GHKCU copper peptide, which activates their own stem cells. And this began because my husband has early Alzheimer's and uh, we went on a, you know, huge search, including going out of country four times in a year to get IV stem cells, didn't really make a difference. A hyperbaric chamber didn't really make a difference. And this little tiny patch for anybody watching, um, which, which elevates your copper peptide, which is published and studied and double-blind placebo-controlled study to do amazing things, including help prevent cancer and fight cancer and help with lungs and help with heart and help with brain. It is phenomenal. And the activation of your own stem cells, your own stem cells, there's nothing going in the body. So it's non-transdermal. It can be used with any modality and any, any kind of a therapy or drugs or prescriptions. It helps people. One of the things I want veterans to know is it helps people with depression, PTSD, uh, any kind of physical pain, uh, inflammation, uh, unbelievable. My husband's dramatically improved in so many areas. I got him back. Actually, I had lost him out into a former shell of himself and he is now back to being awake and funny and flirty and his personality again. But I wouldn't have, if I hadn't, have, you know, I do my homework. I do a lot of research and I study things very, and I've, I've looked at over the, the 90 clinical studies that are involved with this. And um, I would love for people to to reach out for me. I would love to help people, especially veterans, especially women veterans. But you know, I've suffered depression. I've suffered PTSD. I have. I can't only tell you I was suffering from depression when I started wearing this patch, and it helped lighten my mood and alleviate that for me. So it's really remarkable. And you can just reach out to me at IamReverseAging.com, and I'm sure you'll put the the link in your show notes. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I'll definitely put your information in the show notes so that people can find your info easily to reach out to you. But um, that sounds amazing. And there's so many technologies and things out there that people don't know about. So it's cool that you're 
working to get the spread the word and share about it and and helping to you know help people i mean your husband's back and that's i mean that's that's huge because it's everything um and i'm not saying it's cured him or or um you know but he he's still got a long way to go but i lost him like into the shell of himself so yeah it's amazing yeah, that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so we do. I do like to end the interviews with what advice would you give to young women who are considering military? What would you say? So I would say this. I don't know anyone. I know a lot of people that have served. I don't know anyone who regrets their military service. Uh, many regret getting out. I hear that a lot. I wish I wouldn't have gotten out. I, I thought I, I thought I should, but I, I really wish I wouldn't have. But I never heard anybody who regretted getting in. You will get so much, uh, the experience, the work ethic, the intrinsic reward for doing meaningful work, uh, for serving your country. You will never forget that. And you will have a family for the rest of your life, an instant family forever, even strangers. I went to a veterans breakfast today and it didn't matter that we had never met each other ever before. We were just like this, um, immediate buddies, willing to do whatever for each other. And uh, I love that. I love that, you know, it doesn't matter that we were different services. It doesn't matter. We both served and there's something connecting us across the world around that. And, and you'll, you'll always have that. And that's why I'm really, I'm really pleased that my children, it, obviously I'm a huge proponent. Otherwise my four children wouldn't be in the military service. It's, and, and that doesn't mean you have to stay forever. I don't really care how, I don't care, you know, you decide whatever is working for you or not working for you, that doesn't matter. Stay for as long as you want, but even a little bit of service, you will gain a perspective. I just don't think most kids today coming out of college or even not in college, they just don't know what they want to do with their life. Mostly, I still, I mean, there are still adults my age that really don't know what to do with their life. So you, you have an opportunity to learn some skills, figure some things out. I like this. I don't like this oh, I really like this, you know, find your passion so that when you do, um, when you do sort of settle into something that you know, it's what you really love. Such great advice. I love that. And yeah, there's so many people who've been on the podcast have given such advice to join the military, to learn about yourself and how it changes them as a person. And I think it really is a positive experience. There are sometimes negative things that happen, but it does push you and challenge you and change you. And it also gives you that time to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life and, and a skill set if you like find a career that you really love. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate you being on the show and just for sharing your experience in the military. Thank you, Amanda. And thank you for doing what you're doing. I appreciate your bravery and all the work that you put into connecting all of us service members and your transparency and getting all of us to be transparent. Um, and that's a that's not an easy task. And I just think what you're doing is amazing. So thank you for what you do. Thank you.